0: This is episode 102 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Zach Smith. Zach has been a practicing medical SLP since 2015 and has worked in a variety of institutions across the medical continuity of care. Currently, he runs Arizona Swallowing and Voice Diagnostics, a mobile fees and video stroboscopy company out of Phoenix, Arizona. Professionally, Zach is most interested in working with patients with neurogenic dysphagia, dysphagia, and voice topics in the tracheostomized, ventilator dependent population. And voice disorders among heavy voice users. He is also passionate about continuing education and establishing open means of dialogue amongst SLPs to establish better practice patterns. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Welcome back. I feel like it's been forever since I've just sat here and talked mindlessly, aimlessly into a microphone, but I just want to say thank you to everyone for all of the kind words and comments about our 100th episode. And then simultaneously that same week, we hit 1 million downloads. So that's totally crazy for just a silly little podcast about dysphagia. But I think what we all learned is that it's not a silly little podcast about dysphagia. I think. I, I can't thank all the guests enough that have come on here to share their experiences, their wisdom, their knowledge. I'm Some of these days, I still just sit here dumbfounded by what knowledge these people have. And I wonder that I've been living under a rock. But anyways, I digress. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. We still do have some giveaways going on over on Instagram. So at Teresa Richard SLP is my Instagram name. Why do we do the giveaways on Instagram? Because they allow us to do them there. And they're much easier than than other sorts of ways of wrangling you guys in. So we still do have the giveaway over there for MDTP. Five lucky winners are going to win registration to MDTP, dinner with me and Dr. Crary and Dr. Carnaby, and the opportunity to stay and watch Dr. Carnaby do MDTP for five days, which just sounds incredible. And on top of that, our wonderful Julie Huffman, you guys remember her. She did two episodes on esophageal dysphagia, and that was probably one of the most memorable episodes I've ever recorded, because I think she was just looking at me and I was just looking like a deer in headlights because I hadn't heard half the stuff she was saying. So I know we all learned a ton from that episode, but Julie is so, so, so wonderful. And she is going to be giving away registration for two lucky winners One for her East Coast course in September on September 22nd in Cary, North Carolina, and another for her West Coast course in San Diego, California on November 8th and 9th. So if you want to enter to win registration to either one of those courses, the awesome Julie Huffman and her esophageal disorders course, please go to Instagram, go to my Instagram. It's at Teresa Richard SLP. And you'll see the post for esophageal dysphagia applications for the SLP, and you can enter to win that. So thank you, Julie, for donating those two registrations to our awesome listeners. We love you. You're wonderful. If you guys need to learn more about esophageal dysphagia, please go listen to her episodes. They are just (laughs) mind-blowing. And lastly, I'd like to say our wonderful MedBridge deal is back. So if you've all been wanting to scoop up that MedBridge subscription for one full calendar year for the low rate of $95, you get upgraded to their premium plan, which comes with their fancy app, the patient handouts, tons of tons of sorts of CEUs. (laughs) I don't think I'm supposed to say tons and tons, but a plethora of ASHA CEUs that are recorded please go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP, or you can enter promo code SYP at checkout and be automatically upgraded to that premium subscription level for only 95 bucks. So thank you, Medbridge. That is our back to school special. I think some of like the West Coast schools or something have been back to school for a while now, but here on the East Coast, we are just starting today. (laughs) So thank you everybody for all of your support for these hundred episodes. We're on what, 102 now? over a million downloads. It's just crazy. I appreciate every single one of you and I hope your fall is off to a wonderful start. Hello, Zach. Hey, Teresa. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me back on.
0: Yes, you are a repeat. Yay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, in a few months, but good to be back.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't remember exactly which number episode you did, but you talked to us all about starting a program in an acute care hospital, and it was a great episode. I know a lot of people really loved it. So thank you for doing that. Of course. All right. So if people don't know who you are, tell them who you are.
1: (laughs) Um, So I'm Zach Smith. I'm a medical SLP based out of Phoenix, Arizona now, which is a new change from my last episode with Teresa. I work exclusively kind of throughout the medical continuity of care. And uh, I also run a mobile fees and video stroboscopy company out of Phoenix.
0: Awesome. So what are we going to talk about today, Zach? Uh,
1: We're talking about sensory function and its role in swallowing. What? Yeah.
0: I didn't know it had anything to do with it.
1: Just a little. You know, not too much.
0: (laughs) All right. All right. Yes, I'm being totally facetious. Yes. Uh, It kind of drives me nuts because it's something that I I know sometimes I'll explain things to SLPs and I'm like, but they have good sensory function. And they're like, well, how do you know? Is that important? Does it matter? And it's like, yes, it matters a ton. So we're going to really, yeah, so we're going to really dive into it today. And I know one of my most favorite quotes that comes to mind is my friend Yvette that always says, sensory input drives motor output. So we need the sensory information. In order for our muscles to work, so I,
1: yep, I know, and most <laughs> of the time people tend to focus on the muscular output, and yeah. that sensation tends to get swept under the rug. Yeah, it's a, it's a 50 split, and you know we need to be paying more attention to it.
0: Yeah, all right. So where should we start, Zach?
1: Well, I figured we could start maybe kind of at the top. You know, just talking about cranial nerve innervation and how that applies to sensation. Um, you know, that's something that. I think, is important for us as SLPs to know. And like you said, most people tend to be focusing more on that motor output. And I think we're really good about you know what drives high laryngeal elevation and basic tongue retraction. But if you ask someone, well, what part of your body is innervated by the current laryngeal nerve? If you ask them what part of their body is is innervated by the vagus nerve, in terms of sensation, maybe not as much. We tend to go in towards, oh, you know, that's um, you know, your laryngeal elevation, that's your pharyngeal contraction, that's this, that's that. And getting into the nitty-gritty on the nerves, that's something we need to know. It helps you in terms of your bedside assessment and can really help you parse out what deficits are going on and how you can help your patient and match an appropriate treatment to them. So I think we'll start there.
0: Yes, let's dive into this.
1: Perfect. So for the intents and purposes of this episode, I'm only going to be focusing on sensation. So all of you out there who are looking for motor control on the cranial nerves, you're not getting it here. I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> um, so there are four main nerves that are involved in afferent control. Um, the first one being trigeminal. And that's a big one because that's going to control, you know, your sensory input from your face, from the inside of your mouth, from your jaw. It also controls the sensation on the anterior two thirds of your tongue with the exception of taste. That's a, a different nerve. Um which is, all, uh, which is actually the, uh, the facial nerve. Most people think of the facial nerve as a purely motor nerve, but there are sensory branches and they control taste from that interior to third portion of your tongue. And then the two big ones that most everybody I feel knows are involved in swallowing are you know, the glossopharyngeal nerve, cranial nerve 9, and the vagus nerve, our big one, cranial nerve 10. The glossopharyngeal nerve is all sensation from the posterior, one-third of the tongue, It controls the sensation from your velum and then from the superior portion of your pharynx. So thinking in the area of the superior pharyngeal constrictor muscle, kind of in that general area. And then in our vagus nerve, we have sensation from the velum as well, the uh, inferior portions of the pharynx. And then the really big one that I'm going to be diving into a little bit more um, is sensation from the larynx. Awesome. Yeah. There's some topics that have been coming up recently, kind of at least I've come across that... If you understand how the sensation works for the larynx, it makes a lot more sense in terms of your clinical practice and recommendations. Silent penetration, I'm looking at you.
0: <laughs> yes, 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 100%.
1: We're looking at that a little bit later.
0: Okay. Awesome.
1: So like you said earlier with Yvette talking about, you know, sensory input drives motor output.
0: So let's move on from cranial nerves.
1: Perfect. So next, I'm going to be talking about um, something called the central pattern generator. And before we get into it, I do want to emphasize that this is more of a theoretical framework for you to kind of use to guide your sensory uh, inputs in terms of swallowing. But in theory, it's, it's kind of the label that you give to the brainstem control areas for swallowing. So we're kind of looking in the medulla blood data at this point. And for that CPG, essentially, you're going to have Sensory input. So all of that that information that we talked about, cranial nerve-wise, you know, your your taste, bolus, size, temperature, all that, that good stuff coming from whatever you're eating or drinking, is going to be sent up into those sensory control centers where it's going to impact your motor function. So, you know, we're we're talking about do you have a bigger bolus? Are you going to need more muscle function to to really get that bolus down? Do you really need to squeeze to for someone with a dysphagia who has you know, is working on an effortful swallow and you're using smaller boluses. All that kind of sensory input is going to be channeled right on up. We're, we're looking at kind of three main branches here. So your, your maxillary branch of the trigeminal nerve, up the glossopharyngeal nerve, and then the superior laryngeal branch of the vagus nerve. All of that, like I said, is going to be turned into signals for the motor output. So I think we had said previously, you know, sensory in, motor out that's kind of how you can frame your thinking on that CPG and how it, how it really plays into, into swallow control. Um, as far as sensation goes.
0: Yeah. And I think what's, what's so fascinating about these central pattern generators is that like, it's, it's not like a place in our brain that you can find and go do surgery on. Like it's just a, a way that these, these neurons, these muscles all move systematically in a pattern every single time they receive that sensory input. So like we have a central pattern generator for walking upstairs, you know, we have one for running, you know, things like that. So I think that's, what's so cool to remember. We have one specifically for chewing and also for swallowing. And I know there's kind of some controversy about how they overlap. Do they overlap? And I don't know that Mm -hmm. we have those definitive answers other than we do have one for chewing. We do have one for the pharyngeal part of the swallow. So it's a really fascinating theoretical concept. So I'm glad we're talking about it, Zach, but I just want to emphasize, like, don't go into your anatomy, gross anatomy class and try digging for the central pattern generator of swallowing because you're not going to find it. So
1: exactly. You know, if you're (laughs) at the phase where you're learning about things, spend your time really focusing on the control and and how that works. And then I think you're, you're better able to match that, that concept of the CPG onto that versus like you said, trying to Dig into someone's brainstem and find up oh, there it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome.
1: Yeah, no problem. I mean, it's a lot more in depth than that, you know. But this is why we need to start thinking about this. It's not all. It's not all motor function. Yeah. You know, clearly after after you know hearing about how all of that plan is is altered, that's why it's really important for us as SLPs to know both sides of that swallowing coin for sensation and motor.
0: I know a lot of people are gonna be listening to this like, are you kidding? Everyone should know this. And then there's gonna be people listening that are like, I've never heard this in my life. So I know we're gonna have a large gamut. So thank you for just providing this information, Zach. Yeah,
1: of course. I mean that's you know, that's why I wanted to get on and talk with you about this is that yeah, you know, for the people who may not know it, who might be transitioning to medical work after years of working with, you know, school-based kids who don't have these kind of sensory issues or people who might have heard it one time years ago in grad school and they completely forgot about it. Oh, this is a nice refresher.
0: I think most people are in that second group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I know I had sure. to take, I had to take neuroanatomy. It was part of the med school mm-hmm. when I was in grad school. So it really didn't relate to like swallowing. I, I couldn't put those pieces together just based on that class. So I had to do a lot of work myself to kind of put those together. So,
1: yeah, I was lucky in my, in my graduate training where my neuro anatomy and neurophys was specifically structured for your speech and swallowing. Um, So we got, yeah, we kind of got a heavy handed dose of, you know, this is how your brain works for speech production. And then more importantly for us is, you know, this is how it works for your swallow function. And that's kind of what's stuck with me and driven my, uh, you know, my practice patterns throughout my career.
0: All right. So let's keep going, Zach.
1: So like I said, there's been kind of buzzwords being thrown around in terms of sensation. um, And knowing that they are truly sensory deficits versus kind of a motor problem is something that influences, you know, one, how you assess a person with dysphagia, and two, how you're going to end up treating it. Um, What I really wanted to focus on was kind of four broad topics of sensation, um, to really kind of drive home that they are sensory-based and, you know, kind of what what that means for us. So your first big one is going to be your pharyngeal initiation. That's a, a really big area driven by your sensory input. Um, and unfortunately, I've come across, whether it be in modified bearings swallow reports or, you know, just talking to clinicians based off of bedside assessment, you know, oh, they have an initiation difficulty, that must be, uh, you know, something, the tongue isn't working, and that's why it's hard for them to kind of get their, their swallow moving. And, you know, yeah, they may have a hard time kind of moving the bolus with their tongue, but that's that's a completely separate issue. If you truly have a pharyngeal initiation issue, that's, you know, you're looking at your, your sensation, you know, do, does the patient feel the bolus where they should in order to initiate that pharyngeal response? Um, And I think that's something that's important to really drive home on that one is there's a range in that. Um, You know, they've done studies that said typically it's when the head of the bolus is is kind of heading towards where your uh, posterior angle of your mandible is. That's kind of our, our typical landmark on a modified barium swallow. But then when you get someone who's 80, 90 years old, that bolus head might, you know, start to dip down a little bit past that. and That's considered normal for them. But again, if you don't know that, you might diagnose someone as having a pharyngeal initiation impairment. At that point, oh, if they've got an initiation issue. They're an aspiration risk. We're going to put them on honey thick liquids because it moves slower and it hits that posterior angle. We're safe. We're good. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's kind of unfortunate in that case. Whereas if you just kind of know how that sensory function changes over time, you know, you can save, you know, grandma or grandpa from having to, to be on thick and liquid, which is you know, from past episodes, I'm sure your listeners know, leads to dehydration and all other host of issues that can be alleviated just by knowing that normal sensory um, function.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge. I think that's that's really where I just get on my soapbox with thickened liquids because I know for some patients they can be helpful, but then for other patients they do not need them. They just have a normal age-related you know, presbyphagia basically. And it's mm-hmm. not even, and sometimes it's not even a presbyphagia. Sometimes it's just a normal aging swallow. So exactly. those are the people that we, yeah, can't be just slapping thickened liquids on for no reason. So
1: no, no, for sure. And I know that you have an episode on normal aging swallow, which, you know, i have kind of take that because that's my soapbox is knowing, you know, how that, how why the pattern changes, I'm going to refer your listeners back to that episode because i can get going on that and we'll be here for hours. Awesome. <laughs> the next one, um, and this is kind of the big one, I think, at least in terms of, um, you know, SLPs, in terms of fears and is this patient truly safe? What can we do for them? Is there anything we can do for them? And that's going to be silent aspiration, frank, silent aspiration, whatever you want to call it. Things going down below the level of the vocal folds, and the patient not having that normal sensory response of you know cough, clear throat, whatever you what, you know what have you silent aspiration is that that lack of what would be considered a normal response. But there's a whole host of other factors to to be considered there. So yes, silent aspiration is is a sensory response. Do they lack that sensory response? Do they you know lack the ability to protect their airway? Yes. At that point most people kind of cut it there as oh you know, they certainly aspirated that, you know, teensy little drop of thin liquid. They're going to get aspiration pneumonia pass away, you know, be in the hospital forever. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of a hard one where the sensation there is a, is a, a big thing. And I think most people do identify that as a sensory response, but then, you know, you tend to forget that, you know, as I'm going about my day as you're going about your day, we're micro aspirating and you don't feel that. And you know, we're yeah. not coughing throughout the day. So, yeah. again, there's that kind of normal variation, and what are you truly going to respond to versus, you know, is that tiny little trickle of thin liquids going down really going to cause a problem for them if they don't feel that? Or is that kind of within that range of, you know, normal?
0: Yeah. So, let, let me ask you, Zach, because so, I know constantly I see reports of people that say, you know, they penetrated on every, every trial of, you know, thickened liquids, thin liquids. So we put them on honey thick.
1: Those are my favorite reports to argue with. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. And, and I, and I've had a few conversations with some people and I'm like, "I, I don't, I can you help me understand why you did that? And it's like, well, because they penetrated and penetrated and penetrated, which means as the meal goes on, then they'll eventually aspirate. I'm like, but you don't know that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's one of the, I don't want to call it a downfall to the modified barium swallow, but you know, you can only see your patient for so long. And if you're basing your results off of repeated penetration on a modified barium swallow and saying, Oh, they're going to aspirate. There's no way for you to know that. And if they didn't aspirate, you're not going to know that they're going to have a sensory response. And that's something, you know, like I talked about when we first started where silent penetration has become this new fad, I think, in in practice where people are diagnosing patients as silently penetrating and, oh my God, you know, they're silently penetrating. They're going to be at a risk for airway compromise. You know, like you said, slap on the thickened liquids and send them out their day. They're fine. We did our job. Good job us. You know, that goes back to your, your cranial nerve innervation. So we talked about how the superior laryngeal nerve is the one that mediates that area where penetration takes place. So everything kind of above the level of the vocal folds, your cough response kicks in when everything happens below the vocal folds. And that's a completely different branch of that nerve. That's your recurrent laryngeal nerve. So that's kind of where I get into discussions with with SLPs as of, you know, well, yeah, they penetrated, but how are you going to say they're going to cough if it hasn't even reached that level that's mediated, your cough response is mediated by that nerve it needs to pass below the level of vocal folds. And if it does and they do cough and it's a forceful cough, who cares? You know, that shows you that they're, they're protecting their airway. I mean, yes, to some degree, we want to make sure that they are protecting not to say, you know, every person who's coughing and every, you know, everything out of their airway is perfectly fine for everything patient by patient basis. But, you know, you don't know that they're going to have a, a silent aspiration based on, you know, what you're calling silent penetration. It's different nerves, totally different functions and studies have shown if you stimulate that branch of the superior laryngeal nerve you're going to stimulate a swallow you're not going to stimulate a cough response or a throat clear so if these patients truly are penetrating like you said penetrate 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 that should be swallow 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 not you know forceful cough forceful cough throat clear silent aspiration and i think that's kind of where that breakdown in you know, not across the board, but in in some SLPs knowledge of sensory function is that they think that, you know, the larynx as a whole is innervated and anything that goes past the, you know, the the tip of your epiglottis is going to lead to a cough. And oh, no, this patient didn't, you know, act thick, honey thick, here we come.
0: Yes. I I think that, I think that nails it. Because I think a lot of people, exactly what you said, I think as soon as something even gets near the laryngeal vestibule, people freak out. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I mean, how many times do you see things just kind of sneak over the area epiglottic folds and then just end up being cleared, you know, perfectly fine. It's like, should, should we technically call that penetration technically, but it's nothing to freak out about? Like, yeah. So,
1: I mean, and again, it's, it's back to, I mean, and I want to get on my soapbox a little bit here, but you know, it's like, it's again back to that range of normal too. I mean, older adults, they've been shown to penetrate to greater depths and more frequently. Does that mean that they need to be on nectar thick or does that mean that they're functioning as a normal, you know, geriatric patient? These are questions that need to be asked. And unfortunately it doesn't seem like across the board yet. I'm going to, I'm going to put that yet in there. Yeah. Not being asked yet, but you know, they should. Big problem there um, in terms of misdiagnosis too. But
0: Yes. Uh, And I think that, I think that's the huge kind of point to all this is that not knowing this information leads to a lot of misdiagnoses, which mm-hmm. leads to just an entire I think ultimately just a huge waste of healthcare dollars. Oh. If we are understanding normal swallowing, if we are understanding aging swallow, if we are understanding sensory function we're misdiagnosing our patients and just putting them down a rabbit hole of dysphagia therapy hill, basically. <laughs>
1: That's so. a good way of putting it. <laughs> I-
0: yeah. That was in my most professional terms ever. So, yeah.
1: I think that that was perfectly professional. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> okay, thanks.
1: <laughs> um, well, yeah, after, you know, that whole soapbox, I'm going to kind of steer back to just one more area uh, of, you know, of sensory issues, and that's the secretion management problems, where, yes. you know, I tend to see this more so on my, you know, neuro patients or patients who have, for whatever reason, had to be uh, put under a trachean vent where, you know, they've got this huge secretion buildup because their sensory patterns inside the pharynx are are off. And that's where you walk into the room and say, hello, and your patient sounds like they're talking to you from, you know, the deep end of a pool. Yeah. You know, they might not be aware of it where, you know, you walk in and you're thinking, oh my God, there's, you know, what vocal quality they're aspirating and it's a sensory issue. Um, you know, but knowing, um, and we're going to kind of come back to that in a little bit with, with treatment, knowing you know, the underlying cause of what might be contributing to that particular sensory issue. There's a lot we can do, you know, to to kind of change that uh, to make improvements for them. So I'm gonna kind of put a pin on that. Okay. Since I can get I can get down a rabbit hole on that one real quick.
0: <laughs> All right. I would like to take a minute to thank our wonderful sponsors, Endo HD. Endo is a true high definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fees studies. EndoHD can be a cased portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. Additionally, EndoHD reps can help clinicians set up their fees programs. Contact them today at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information.
1: Next, and this is kind of where I feel like uh, I- I'm going to I'm going to have to put myself out on a limb there. And this is kind of treatment, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to preface my treatment section with, for those of you listening, if you hear something that you swear by and I may be about to slander (laughs) a little bit, you know, that's not a, that's not a personal attack on you. It's just, it's kind of at this point, I'm going to be challenging people really to think about why you're using certain techniques to target sensation versus other much more appropriate ways, um, you know, and, and really the way to kind of dig down at that is to spend time going to continuing ed and doing your research more recently than not, which is really, really unfortunate to me is I've been seeing goals written, um, notes written, everything you can think of written, talking about how, you know, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so will initiate swallow in 10 seconds, provided DPNS. I'm going to start there. I'm starting big and we'll work our way down there. You know, DPNS is something that I remember. I mean, and I'm, I'm not, you know, more than five years into my career at this point, but I remember learning about that five years in grad school as this is something that people do. And even at that point, it was kind of a don't use it. It's uncomfortable. It's, you know, it's this, it's that, but then you really kind of, dig down into it and you find out there's no published research talking about how DPNS does improve their sensory response. You know, we don't know by sticking our, you know, lemon glycerin swabs or whatever you want down there, that that's really going to truly elicit a swallow versus a gag or, you know, what else vomit, you name it. Um, You know, and I think that's a big one where, I hear a lot of clinicians come, you know, come out and say, well, I've been using GPNS for 10, 15 years, and I know that it has a really good response. And, you know, I like to say, that's great. You know, it's, it's great that you're using this because it's been used for, you know, used so long in the past and it's you know, been, quote unquote, effective. But then I challenge you to look at, you know, kind of that triangle of evidence-based practice where we're looking at, does it have research? One, that's a huge piece of it. Two, how does your patient feel about it? And then three, at least what I deem kind of the lower level of, of EBP is, have you seen it work clinically? And, you know, for DPNS specifically, like I said, there's no research backing yet. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to guess if you ask 10 patients, do you like having DPNS done on you? You might get the one crazy one who says, sure, I, you know, giant, giant Q-tip all the way but most of the time they're going to say it's, it's really uncomfortable and I really don't prefer that. So you're down to, you know, two out of three negative for DPNS. Why use it? There are, you know, much more effective ways of of touching on sensory issues than that. So that's kind of my soapbox on DPNS. And, you know, for those of you who might've heard that this is a good thing or are using it, challenge yourself, you know, do, do you really think it's, it's up to the highest standards? Do you really think that, by doing that, you're doing what's best for the patient, in my mind. And I'm not, you know, I'm not here to necessarily, you know, drag you over to the dark side of, of you know, Zach's ideology of DBS. This is hell, like you said, is feta therapy hell. But, you know, are you really doing what's best for your patient? And I'm going to go out on and say no. By doing. It.
0: Can I back you up a little bit, Zach? Because I think what's what's interesting, what I've found recently, is that we have some younger clinicians that were taught by older clinicians to do this technique, mm-hmm. and then and then I found that they don't know that it's called DPNS. Mm-hmm. So some people might be doing this, and they don't know what DPNS is. So can you explain kind of the definition of it and what it is so that those that are out there actually doing it know what we're talking about and know that there's really nothing to support it
1: dpns is deep pharyngeal neuromuscular stimulation
0: okay
1: Um, that's what the you know that's what the acronym stands for essentially what it is is most of the time at least and and, any of this is i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of go about it this way since this is i feel like more common of an approach to it it usually involves kind of shoving a lemon, lemon glycerin swab Kind of as far back as you can, and swabbing around to "quote unquote" stimulate those areas um, innervated by the nerves we talked about earlier to elicit a swallow response. And the kind of thought behind it is, it's it's almost like a really weird version of thermotactile stimulation, <laughs> where you know you're you're providing this increased sensory response to areas that are normally controlled. You know this way in terms of sensation, and now they're functioning in a different way. So you know, let's swab around, wake up those nerves, swallow, 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 and then over time you'll see the goals kind of shift from there. Are going to initiate a swallow to they'll initiate a swallow within thirty seconds, 15, 10, whatever it is to try and decrease that time just by swabbing around. Um, but the problem is, you know, you can you can hit the tip of the tongue, you can hit you know, your teeth and, and, you know, you know, the lateral sulci, but when you're digging around in the way back of your, you know, oral pharynx, you don't, you know, have the best control over what areas you're hitting. So, you know, you might be thinking you're hitting an area stimulated by or that stimulates swallow response where in reality you're going to hit something that's going to cause a gag. And that's a huge problem with PNS is that you've got patients who the goal is for initiate swallow in 10 out of 10 opportunities and they're gagging at 10 opportunities and, now you know. Oh, why are they doing this? This must be aberrant sensation. And in reality, you just don't know where you're hitting. Yeah, and that's the problem with it.
0: Yeah, I recently read a report that the SLP did DPNS in the patient guide consistently. Therefore, they recommended a pig tube.
1: Oh. Yeah, I'm not surprised so. by that. It's yeah. disheartening yeah. every time I hear it. But I at know. this point, it's you know I feel like reports like that are becoming so much more. Common, unfortunately, that I,
0: I know. I, so I, 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 just want to clarify that we do not have research to support that,
1: and that's really just
0: what I want to scream from the rooftop. So
1: yes, I'm currently on a crusade against that because I just moved back, to, and this I promise, this is not a Phoenix thing. I'm not calling out Phoenix SLPs. Mm-hmm. Um, I just worked, since I moved out here. I've ended up being able to work more closely with SLPs. Versus uh, when I was in L.A. Uh, the last time I was on, I moved back here in February. And since then, I have come across four separate SLPs recommending DPNS. Yeah. So it's become kind of my personal crusade to, you know, at least let people know there's no research behind it, like you said. And, yeah. you know, I'm not going to strong arm anybody into not doing DPNS, but I strongly encourage you to read the research and to, to look it up and You know, you'll find studies out there on DPNS that say there are no studies on DPNS to show that it's efficacious.
0: Yeah. All right. So let me ask you, what's the difference between DPNS and thermal tactile stimulation?
1: Thermal tactile stimulation, first off, has weak evidence. So we're going from no evidence to weak evidence. Um, And, you know, thermal tactile stimulation usually is done a little bit further forward than DPNS. It's not you know you're not reaching down trying to, to choke the person with a lemon glycerin swab. Um, you know you might take your lemon glycerin swab or your cold laryngeal mirror or I've seen people do it with a blade of a spoon where you're making it really cold or you know in the case of a lemon glycerin swab it's quote unquote sour and you're providing stimulation to the superior surface of the tongue to the anterior fascial pillars, kind of wherever that particular therapist thinks there is a sensory issue same kind of thing you know you're providing that that thermal sensation from the cold the tactile from kind of your pressure from your your orange your swab whatever it is it's going to quote-unquote increase sensation they're going to initiate a swallow and we're going to do the same kind of procedure where we're going to do you know uh input to the interior fascia pillar oh they swallowed cool let's do it again and again and again and then in reality, then we go back to well, they might be swallowing to it, but what's the research say? Does it improve sensory response? Does it improve swallowing? And you know, at that point, you're really only swallowing. Your saliva and can only do so much at that point. So you're not really kind of retraining that patient to have a normal sensory response to a you know a true bolus that they might be ingesting. Um, so that's kind of where you know, there's evidence that it might improve some sensory response, but Long term, is this is this really something that's going to be a benefit to the patient?
0: Awesome. All right.
1: But <laughs> after all that, the big soapboxes. Please don't do this. There are good, valid, research-based methods of increasing sensory input for for patients with dysphagia, and you know, personally, in my practice, I prefer to do these because you can really take these and put them into. Liquid consistency, you can really put them into a solid consistency, and then you're working on, on, you know, getting as many swallows as you can in the session, provided a true bolus, and that's really where you're going to get into that neuroplastic research of we're having them swallow, we're having them participate in solids and liquids, and it's done in a way that does increase their sensory response. And you know, the the kind of big ones are, uh, you know, your sour bolus, your carbonated bolus, temperature variations size variations Um, like i talked about earlier with your your central pattern generator those are going to be the ones that if you do have kind of a, a diminished sensory response those are the ones that research has found they kind of do provide that boost in sensation not necessarily to you know get you kind of back up to normal levels right away but they do provide that that increase where you are starting to to realize, okay, this is, you know, I have something here. I, I have a little bit more increased sensation that's going to send up and you're going to get that motor response. And those are the ones that you really want to be using. That's where the research is. And that's yeah. where we get the best response.
0: Well, great, Zach. Mm-hmm. Where, else, where else are we headed?
1: I, I feel like, you know, during my, my time with you, I've been a lot more of a don't do this and God, why are people doing this? And <laughs> I don't want to come across as, you know, if you're doing it, you're bad. And I've written you off. You know, I I don't have that. I'm, you know, I'm someone who outside of my own clinical interests and dysphagia, I'm really passionate about having that open dialogue between SLPs. And, you know, you learn from me, I learn from you. We both improve our practice patterns. And and there are ways, especially in terms of sensation, to really get that done. Um, I mean, I've come across CEUs for just basic, you know, like what i Very briefly touched upon up, um, you know, at the beginning of our talk in terms of, you know, cranial nerve review for the SLP. They're not just going to go over motor response. I know that's the kind of big one, but, you know, they are going to review your sensations. So taking CEUs, reaching out to SLPs around your area who may have a little bit more practice or knowledge in dysphagia than, than you might or have a better understanding of the role of sensation in, in, fringal swallowing and oral pharyngeal swallowing so that you're able to learn from them. Um, you know, it, it's really about how, how dedicated you are to continuing to develop, to develop your skills versus like you said, where those younger clinicians are, are being taught by older clinicians to do DPNS and that's what they were taught and they're going to stick to it and hold to their guns. Well, practice patterns change a lot more frequently than, than we think. So it is up to you to you know make sure that you're using the most updated methods. I mean, I remember when I was in grad school, thermal tactile stimulation was what people were doing. That was the approach to sensory uh, therapy, and now we're finding out that you know the evidence, like I said, really isn't there. And that was only a few years ago. So you know, continuing to keep up with this and really look at dysphagia as a whole versus more of that motor response of oh god you know their their larynx isn't elevating what do we do you know that's where you want to be is is holistic approach to this stage of taking into consideration you know patient factors motor response like we're talking about sensation they're all pieces that really do tie it together to you know to, to provide you that full picture so that you can be doing better by your patients
0: Yeah. I, I think what I love about this is, is being able to understand this information a lot more leads to a lot more liberalization in your practice, which can also lead to a lot more liberalization with patients' decisions and recommendations. And I'm what I mean by that is just by understanding all these different variations and understanding that, oh, it went into the airway and the patient coughed and cleared. Yay! The body's doing what it's supposed to do. Whereas, you know, even five, 10 years ago, a lot of people were led to believe, oh my gosh, it went in the airway, the patient coughed, they have dysphagia, they need thickened liquids. So I think knowing these normal responses and what the body is supposed to do helps us be better clinicians and, and and effectively helps our patients. You know, I, I don't know what we're gonna do for therapy if we say, oh, the patient coughed and then they coughed and then they coughed on three different trials and so we should put on put them on thickened liquids. You know, it's like what what did we find here?
1: Yeah, I mean ultimately you found that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, like you said earlier, if we're picking up that patient for therapy based on the fact that they're Coughing solely, you know, that's spending insurance money that does not need to be spent. And we leads us down that rabbit hole of, you know, inappropriate recommendations, misdiagnosis, inappropriate therapy. And we get on that wheel and that can go forever.
0: And, and I want to clarify, this is actually under instrumentation. So this is not just a cough at the bedside because you don't know at the bedside if the cough is effective or not. But under instrumentation, we know, oh, the cough was effective or was not in, was ineffective, which then obviously we would create a whole other treatment plan for but
1: I mean and you know that's another another point to this is um, you know we were talking about the different types of, uh, of sensory input that do lead to you know improved outcomes, you know your sour carbonated and, and all that. Not each one is effective for each patient. So, you know, I'm not advocating for people to go out there and, you know, hey, here's a spoonful of lemon juice, it's sour, let's see if you swallow. They're also something that, you know, I feel needs to be tested under instrumentation, in my opinion, specifically fees, that way you're able to really look at how they're responding. Because I know, you know, not everybody agrees, but you can tell pharyngeal initiation from a fees. So yeah. You know, giving them these sour boluses, giving them carbonated boluses, seeing how they do versus hot and cold versus room temperature, all under instrumentation. That can really guide your your treatment because if you give someone a sour bolus under fees and, oh, that hit the piriform sinus, they still haven't initiated. Why are you going to waste your time and, more importantly, the patient's time giving them sour bolus after sour bolus when you have proof it does not work for them? Let's try carbonated, see if carbonated works, and then you have that match and go from there.
0: Excellent. I think that's a great point, Zach. Did we cover everything?
1: (laughs) Um, Broadly, I feel like, yeah. Yeah. uh, Like I said earlier, I feel like I could talk about sensation for, you know, hours upon hours. But, uh, you know, the point is really just to kind of give uh, an overview of what normal sensation is and how, you know, how to tell are there normal variations in sensation or not and what to do about it. So, you know, yeah. looking at it broadly, I think that we're at a good place for you know people yeah. to kind of take that and and run with it. Um, I know in the handout that um, that's going to be attached to the episode. I have a lot of different yeah. research articles, and I promise it's not exhaustive, but <laughs> um, you know, it's at least a good place to start. So,
0: yeah, excellent. Yeah, there's a lot of really good papers in here. Is there are any of these particularly your favorite or game changers for you? Or
1: well, <laughs> funny enough. Um, and I may have to update this before you release it. I forgot to put my kind of game changer (laughs) paper on my list of references. Um, And that's going to be, you know, the Robbins et al. paper um, from 2008. It's titled Swallowing and Dysphagia Rehabilitation, Translating Principles of Neuroplasticity into Clinically Oriented Evidence. Um, I really like that paper. Because like I talked about, it does look at dysphagia as a whole. And there's a huge section in there on well, all treatment methods. But, you know, for, for the purpose of this episode, it does talk about sensation. And it really looks at, is your treatment method causing a behavioral change or, you know, more, a, more of a neuroplastic change or both? Um, so it really does kind of give you that good breakdown in terms of, you know, what you're doing and how it's going to be influencing your patient. Um, you know, so for example, I know this is kinda of out of the realm of, of sensation here, but you know, everybody everybody knows a chin tuck. Everybody who's not a speech pathologist knows a chin tuck. And, you know, they think that it it changes dysphagia. They think it's the you know the be all end all cure for dysphagia, just talking to your chin. Well this paper goes into no, that is a behavioral change and what that means versus are we really influencing the neural functioning for swallowing with that. Um you know but for all of the ones that we've talked about, you know it goes into that most of these sensory responses are really behavioral changes ultimately and there are a few that are are um have been found to really be neural changing um over time but um oh that's actually something I completely forgot. Um I wanted to kind of touch base on uh, Secretion management and, and trachs, and how that's a little bit different. Yeah. 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 So, when you know, we were talking earlier about secretion management, and you might have that in a patient who has a neurodiagnosis, and then you might have some patients who are on a trach event who also have secretion management issues. The issue there is really how you get down to that sensation. So, you know, if you have a patient who's had a stroke that's affected sensory responses, that's going to be a whole lot different than a patient who has an open respiratory system, you know, with a trach tube. Um, and we know that if you have, you know, an open trach tube, that the sensation in your pharynx is going to be diminished. That's just, um, you know, dry tissue, less response. That's why, you know, we advocate if you're going to be doing things with a patient on an open trach tube, you do it under a video uh, or a fees where you can see really what's going on. But a really important thing there is we can be, looking to restore normal sensation for those patients particularly by digitally occluding their trach, by putting on a PMV, something like that to make it a more closed respiratory system. Um, I I think a lot of people look at it as putting on the speaking valve for a trach patient or, you know, normalizes pressures and you know, in the oral pharynx for swallowing and it does a lot of good, but I, I feel like a good amount of people out there don't know about, the sensory response that comes with, you know, that kind of a change for a tracheostomized patient, you know? So again, kind of going back to that paper that that I was just talking about, that's a more behavioral response versus anything else, because you're not neurologically influencing these trache patients just by putting a speaking valve on there. You're, you know, you're normalizing their ability to have a more closed respiratory system, to have that normal quote unquote, or approaching normal, I should say, ability to kind of, you know, humidify their own, you know, airway, they might have to have a a humidification system in place, but it's getting back to normal sensation for them just by doing that. Um, So it's important to remember that sensory issues do exist in that population as well. Kind of going out of order. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, no, no, that's, that's great. I'm sure people what about this? Yes, thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no problem.
0: All right. Awesome. Zach, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us.
1: Yeah, of course. My pleasure.
0: Anything else else you'd like to add?
1: I think I'll, I'll put a, you know, I'll stop it there. Um, you know, but for people listening, I'm fairly active on a lot of our Facebook forums. Um, you know, so if you have questions based off of something I said or I've touched a nerve and you want to argue with me, (laughs) please feel free to reach out. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm like I said, I'm always happy to have these open lines of communication. I think that's huge in our field, given, you know, most of the time you might be the only SLP in your facility. Hop on Facebook, message me, at me in groups, I don't care.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah,
1: you know, and there is a resource.
0: Awesome. Well thank you, Zach. I really super appreciate you coming on to talk about this.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me again.
0: So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming.